0: Hi, this is Ben Lowell with Back to the Bible Canada. Yesterday, we began to unravel one of the most important and perhaps mysterious doctrines of the Bible, the Trinity. Today, we continue by further examining the three distinct persons of the Father, Son, and Spirit. So let's begin our time together with Dr. John Newfeld.
1: Yesterday, we began with a foundational understanding of the Trinity. There is only one God, and yes, this one God is different than we had imagined. He eternally exists as three distinct persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. If you're unsure about that, I encourage you to go back to yesterday's biblical evidence and see that this is exactly what the Bible teaches. Today, I want to push the matter of the Trinity one step further. Why is God three persons? If God is excellent in all His ways, being three persons must be the best way for God to be. But why is that so? And what is the relationship between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? Do the three persons who are the one God have different roles to play, or do they do exactly the same thing? And finally, what does all that mean to us? Let's leave the first question to the end. Why is God as Trinity the most excellent way for God to be? Instead, let's begin by asking questions about the relationship between the three persons who are the one God. At the outset, let's say that all that is true of God or all of the attributes or perfections of the one God are equally true of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. Throughout this study, when we have said that God is altogether glorious or that he's unchangeable, all-powerful, full of love and grace and wrath, jealousy, wisdom, knowledge, that he rules with sovereignty, that he is altogether glorious and lives in unapproachable light, all these things are equally true of Father, Son, and Spirit. After all, as we've noted, if all three persons are the one God, then everything that is essential to being God must be true of all three. And so, just so we understand, the Father is fully God. Now, around that matter, there is no dispute. But the Son is also fully God. We're going to discuss this matter more thoroughly tomorrow, but for our purposes, please notice John 20, verses 28 to 29. The disciples are meeting in the upper room, and they're discussing the resurrection appearances of Jesus. Thomas says he doesn't believe any of this. He's a realist. Dead men don't rise. He will never believe unless he is presented with clear evidence. And of course, Jesus stands among them, invites Thomas to put his hands into the places where he was wounded, and to examine him most closely to see that he is not a spirit, for he has real flesh and bones. And what happens next fascinates us. Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. See, that's an amazing thing to say. Contrast this encounter with the one described in Revelation chapter 22, verses 8 and 9. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I heard and saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed them to me. But he said to me, you must not do that. I am a faithful servant with you and your brothers, the prophets, and with those who keep the words of this book. Worship God. And so it is quite clear. No lesser being can ever receive worship or any expressions of adoration that are due to God alone. Now, here's the question. When Thomas called Jesus his Lord and his God, one of two things was bound to happen. Either Jesus would correct him and say, you know, wait a minute, Thomas. Thomas. You're going overboard. What you expressed to me can only be expressed to God, or he would accept this. And I can only imagine in the upper room, the other disciples must have watched with bated breath. What happens now? Exactly who is Jesus, this man who has beaten death? John 20, verse 29 contains Jesus' response. Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now, clearly, the belief must refer to two things. First, the belief that Jesus truly did rise from the dead. And second, the only logical conclusion that one might hold from such an event. The one who beat death must be the only one who can beat death, God himself. And so all that is attributed to the Father is also attributed to the Son. But what of the Holy Spirit? Is the same claim made about him? Consider the account of Acts chapter 5. The church has been founded after the resurrection of Jesus, and very early on, a financial crisis ensues. In order to mitigate it, a number of generous individuals without any pressure from without sold property, liquidated assets, and brought the entire sum and laid it out at the apostles' feet. A man named Ananias did the same, but withheld part of the proceeds of his property. It was his to do as he saw fit. He was under no obligation to bring anything. But Ananias cared about appearances and so made it appear that he had done so. Peter, the apostle, immediately knows this is an act of deception, an act of hypocrisy. And Acts 5 verses 3 to 4 tells us what happens next. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. See, according to Peter, lying to the Holy Spirit is lying to God. And lying to God is a great sin, which is precisely what Ananias did. And so it becomes abundantly clear. The Father contains all the attributes of God. But in the life of the early church, it was soon seen that both Jesus and the Holy Spirit are also said to contain all the attributes of God. See, when we say that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are God, we're saying that all the attributes that are true of God are equally applied to all three persons. All that is true of the Father is true of the Son and is also true of the Holy Spirit. But if this is so, why are there three persons? And the answer to that question must be that the three persons who are the one God play a very different role or play a different function. Now, it is true that we don't know all of the unique functions that they play, but we do know that God has revealed to us the unique role the three persons play in a number of areas. Historically, Bible teachers have called this the economy of the Trinity. Now, the word economy is used in the older sense of the term when it was used of the ordering of a household. It means the ordering of activities. See, the question is this. Are there activities or the ordering of the activities of God such in which each of the three persons play a unique role? See, let's begin with the matter of creation. According to our Bible, God the Father spoke the world into being. But according to John 1, verse 3, speaking of the unique role of the Son, it says, All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that has been made. Or as Colossians 1, verse 16 says of the Son, All things were created through Him and for Him. And so in some fashion, God the Father spoke the universe into being, and that His decree was carried out or brought into being through the work of the Son. Another way of putting that would be to say, the Father gave the order, and the Son carried it out. But what role did the Holy Spirit play? Well, according to Genesis 1, verse 2, the Holy Spirit was hovering over the face of the waters. In some fashion, the Holy Spirit was sustaining the work and ensuring the immediate presence of God would be felt in all aspects of the work. But let's move to another area, that of our salvation. John 3.16 says, God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Now, in that short passage, it becomes clear that God the Father took the initiative in our salvation. It was the Father who sent the Son. It was not the Son who came on his own initiative. Now, that becomes overwhelmingly clear from a number of Bible texts. The Father commands and the Son obeys. Consider John 3.17. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world. So it's clear that not only did the Father send the Son, but when He sent the Son, He gave the Son very clear orders as to what the Son was to accomplish. The Son was not to condemn, but to save. The sending that the Father does is repeated in Galatians 4 verse 4. When the time had fully come, God sent forth His Son. Now here we learn that not only does the father send and not only does the father indicate the exact nature of the son's ministry, but the father also determines the precise timing of the mission. When the time had come means that in wisdom, it was the father who determined exactly when the son was to arrive. I hope you're getting at a little known fact. The son submitted himself to the will of the father. The father commanded and the son obeyed. Just like an earthly father might direct his son, so the heavenly Father took the leadership and the eternal Son obeyed. Read through the ministry of Jesus and you'll hear him speaking that way constantly. See, in John 5.19 we read, So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. See, some people have been troubled with that. If the Father and the Son are eternally equal, how is the Father commanding and the Son is obeying? More when we come back.
0: Well, we know for certain that the Bible speaks directly to the equality of each person in the Trinity. As Dr. Newfeld has pointed out, all that is true of the Father is true of the Son and is also true of the Holy Spirit. But now we begin to unravel something of the mystery of the relationship between the three persons in the Trinity. So hold on as Dr. Newfeld reveals more of the Bible's teaching on this subject right after the break. Truth in Life, our new ministry magazine, is arriving for the very first time in mailboxes right across the country. The whole intention of this magazine is wrapped up in its title. It will teach truth, the truth found in God's Word, and it will relate that truth to our daily lives, our struggles, understanding who God is, and how we can grow in our relationship with Jesus every day. And along the way, we hope some of the articles will make you smile and gain a new sense of hope. Make sure if you're not receiving your free bi-monthly magazine Truth and Life that you ask for yours today. Email us at info at ca, or you can sign up online at backtothebible.ca or call us at 1-800-663-2425. And now let's return with Dr. John Newfeld. The New
1: Testament clearly teaches Jesus submission to the Father. When he awaits his arrest, as he prays in Gethsemane, he in great agony says, Not my will, but yours be done. When he dies on the cross, he cries out, Into your hands I submit my spirit. See, there's a passage in Scripture that some people have a great deal of difficulty with in squaring with the Trinity. It's 1 Corinthians 15, verses 24 to 28. I'm going to read the passage, but I'm going to slow down my reading so we're absolutely certain about which member of the Trinity we're reading about. Let's start with verse 24. Then comes the end when he, that is, when Jesus the Son, delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. So we have a picture. The Father has given the Son an assignment. Not only is he to die for the sins of the world, he is to establish his kingdom, a kingdom that eventually destroys every earthly power. Now, when that's done, when Christ has returned and brought all kingdoms under his authority, then as he completes his assignment, he approaches his father and delivers the kingdom to the father. Okay, let's read on. Verses 25 to 27a. For he that is, the Son, must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet, that is, the Son's feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God, that is, God the Father, has put all things in subjection under his, that is, the Son's feet. Again, notice the Son is carrying out the Father's assignment. But here we see it's more than an assignment. Because of the Father's power, the Father himself ensures that all things will be in subjection to the Son. Now to the difficult portion of the passage, verses 27b and on. But when it says, all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he, that is the Father, is accepted, who put all things under him. And that is, the Father is not one of the all things who are placed under the authority of the Son. Now to verse 28. When all things are subjected to him, that is, to the Son, Then the Son himself will also be subjected to him, that is to the Father, who put all things in subjection under him, that is the Son, that God may be all in all. Now that passage is, in my books, one of the delightful passages explaining the future of this earth, but also the relationship between the Father and the Son. The father leads, the son submits. In the end, the father takes complete leadership, and the son remains eternally submissive to his father. But I can almost hear the protests. I thought you said, and even showed us from the Bible, that the father and the son are co-equal, and that the same honor that is afforded to the father must be afforded to the son. How then can, in this passage, there be such a clear leadership of the Father and such a clear picture of the submission of the Son to the Father? But a moment's reflection tells us that we have brought our cultural values into the text. See, the idea of submission in our culture makes many of us bristle. We don't like it. After all, the idea of submission, at least in our minds, stands in direct opposition to the idea of equality. And so, for instance, if wives are told to submit to their husbands, then it must mean that they're inferior to their husbands. At least that's what some of us think. And if, as Hebrews 13 reminds us, that the people in the church are to submit to their leaders, those who taught them the word, we also protest. We might say, well, who do they think they are? I'm in no way inferior to them. But here's a little lesson on the Trinity. The doctrine of the Trinity tells us of an eternal equality of being and at the same time a subordination in the role of the Son. He who was and is always fully equal to the Father found it to be his delight to submit to the Father. See, sometimes Bible teachers have used words like ontological equality and economic subordination. Well, that's just a fancy way of saying equality of being and submission in the unique role of the Son. Let me put it directly. To say that the Son is inferior to the Father in being is a heresy, and it is denied by multiple Bible texts. But to say that the Son willingly submits to the Father's leadership is exactly what the Bible teaches on numerous occasions. Think of it this way. Is the Prime Minister of Canada greater than you are? Well, no, he's not. He, like you, is a human being created in the image of God, and he may have no greater IQ than you do, and he will live and die and make mistakes and experience humanity even as you do. But the prime minister carries on a role, an economy within the household of Canada. He is to take leadership, that is his office or his role. And it is also the role of our heavenly father to plan our salvation and the role of the son to submit to the father and become our sin bearer and so fulfill the desire of the father. And if I might, I'd also like to make this matter intensely practical. Are you a follower of Jesus, but are rebellious to the will of the Father? Consider Jesus. He, unlike yourself, was in no way inferior to the Father, yet considered it his delight to do the Father's will. Only the most conceited rebel, who is infinitely inferior to the Father, would lift up his hand and rebel against the command of the Father. Such a one is unworthy of the Father and the Son. Wow, can you digest that? Perhaps some of you are listening to my voice and you need to come to your senses and repent. If today you're carrying out a campaign of rebellion against the Father, take the time and plead with him for mercy and in gratefulness thank him for the gift of the Son who humbled himself to death, even death on a cross. Can you do that? See, I pray that you can. And that leads me very nicely to examine what unique role the Spirit plays in our salvation. If it was the Father who planned our salvation, and it was the Father who sent the Son into the world, and if it was the role of the Son to obey the Father and become our sin substitute, what does the Holy Spirit do? As Jesus was about to leave this earth, he told his disciples what would happen next. John sixteen seven 7-8, Jesus says, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away, for if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you, and when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. See, leaving aside the question of why the Holy Spirit had to wait until Jesus went away, we do see that there remains a unique role for the Holy Spirit. He convicts the world. Or to put it another way, the Father planned our salvation, and the Son accomplished our salvation, and the Holy Spirit completes our salvation. Without His work, no one would come to be saved. His task, according to John 3, verses 5 to 8, is to give us new birth, to change our hearts from the hearts of rebels to the hearts of those who would find delight in the cross. So let me say it again so that we don't miss it. The Father planned our salvation from eternity. That was His unique role. The Son accomplished our salvation by becoming our sin substitute and reconciling us to the Father. That was the Son's unique role. And the Spirit completes our salvation by giving us a new heart so that we might love the cross. That is the unique role of the Holy Spirit. Were it not for all three members of the Trinity playing out their unique roles, none of us would be saved. What we so often think of as, well, I just decided to become a Christian and be reconciled to God, sounds now so shallow in the light of the triune God. The honor and the glory and the praise for our salvation never belongs to us. It belongs entirely to the triune God. So in our study of the Trinity, we've seen that there is but one God and this one God is different from all other things we've encountered. He eternally exists as three persons. And now we've seen that whereas the three persons who are the one God are completely equal in being, yet they play unique and distinct roles. But there's still so much more to be examined. Why is the Father called the Father and why the Son called the Son and why the Spirit called the Holy Spirit? Join me tomorrow.
0: Thanks for your message today, John. Uh, Something comes across really clearly is this whole idea of submission and and how that's really reflected in the relationship between the persons and the Trinity. But in our world today, the word submission doesn't come across always very kindly. Uh, What's the difference here?
1: Yeah, I do know that uh, we have come to believe that submission and equality can't be together in one paragraph. But the Trinity teaches us exactly the opposite. You know, the Son submits to the Father. And by the way, if I can just for a moment speak about submission to God, I mean, how is it? that Christ who is fully equal to the Father can submit and we who are infinitely inferior can't. I mean, that's an amazing statement, but that also might get us to understand why it's so difficult for us to submit in everything. I mean, having failed to submit to the Father, we also fail to submit in other relationships that we might have, and so we bristle at the very thought of the word. And I think that we need to understand submission in its biblical uh, sense over and over again, And it is such an eye-opener to find out that a study of the Trinity might just change the way
0: we think about every single relationship from now on in. I mean, that's the glory of this study. I'm somewhat overwhelmed as we begin to understand the wonderful and the perfect harmony that takes place within the persons of the Trinity and how all of this works together for our salvation. As Dr. Neufeld explained, the Father planned our salvation, the Son accomplished our salvation, and the Holy Spirit completes our salvation. What a glorious gift we've received. Now tomorrow, the unwrapping of this wonderful mystery continues, so make sure to join us. Back to the Bible Canada, leading you forward in your walk with Jesus every day. I'm not sure you've noticed, but in the past few weeks, all of our ministry websites have been relaunched with a fresh new look, easier to use, and more resources than ever before. Backtothebible.ca, LaughAgain.ca, and InDoubt.ca are really the hub of all of our ministry resources. Our daily programs, audio, video, print, special events, how to contact us, or how to purchase our resources for your own library. So make sure to check out the new websites. We think you'll be pleased in how it makes all of what we do accessible. And as we come to the end of February, if you haven't already done so, would you consider supporting us financially? Mediums like our websites, mobile applications, daily radio programs, all come at a cost. And your support makes all of these resources possible. For more information or to donate, call us at 1-800-663-2425 That's 1-800-663-2425 or donate online at backtothebible.ca.